Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Tell Us a Good Story. Have you ever heard the phrase, history repeats itself? According to our next guest, that is exactly what is happening right now in Ukraine. Isabella Lundberg was a teenager in the 90s when the Balkan Wars tore apart the former Yugoslavia. And as a result, this woman's life changed forever as supplies stopped coming in and out of the city she lived in. Kevin, that's not good when your father and sister are severe diabetics. Right. So at the urging of her father, she escaped with her sister. And as you will hear, this is a firsthand account of what it's actually like to be a refugee, trying to sneak across borders, trying to figure out what countries will accept you, because if they don't, they're going to send you right back to the socialist country you just escaped. You guys, we can't wait for you to hear this compelling story with Isabella Lundberg. I'm Kevin. And I'm Stephanie. And during our marriage, we have dealt with an electrocution, a brain tumor, brain surgery. Then doctors telling us that children were not in our future, followed by miscarriage, and then Kevin's cancer diagnosis. However, today, we live a life completely healed and restored with three healthy children who doctors said were not possible. And we're here to tell stories that inspire, give hope, and brighten your day. Welcome to Tell Us a Good Story. This episode is being presented to you by Luby Companies, a custom home builder here in central Ohio. Let them be your builder for life. They're freaking awesome. This is going to be amazing. 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 You guys, this woman's story and what she's overcome. Oh, it's going to be incredible. Well, friends, our next guest has done some absolutely incredible things in her life. She is an Amazon best-selling author. She is a producer of an award-winning feature film. She was recognized in 2021 as one of the top 50 most impactful people on LinkedIn. But wait, she also escaped Yugoslavia as a teenager during the Balkan Wars and has survived genocide, torture, war trauma, and journeyed across five countries as a refugee before arriving in the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Tell Us a Good Story, Miss Isabella Lundberg. Oh, Miss Isabella, this is going to be incredible. I'm so excited about this. Thank you so much for having me on Tell Us a Good Story. Well, this is going to be a great story. So how long have you been in Denver now? 20 years? Over 20 years. And an interesting thing is that I literally right now feel like I'm repeating all of this because of refugees from Ukraine. It's just chilling what's going on right now. It's just the same systematic, repetitive motion of what is going on and propaganda and everything because Serbian military did the same thing that Russians are right now and doing. It's like everything is so same. It's not like alike or similar, but identical in many ways that I really feel like right now doing second chapter of my life on that level, if, if that makes sense. Oh my gosh. I, when I was reading your story, I thought the same thing. I'm like, I wonder how similar this is to what you see today with Ukraine, mm-hmm. with all the refugees trying to leave the border and everything. So where did you grow up? I grew up in central part of former Yugoslavia, uh, Sarajevo region that is right now known as independent country Bosnia-Herzegovina. And I had a best of two worlds. So imagine being part of Olympic town and Olympic mountains, but also having a Adriatic coast for less than five hours and the best of the best, a beautiful Dubrovnik backdrop and a gorgeous Adriatic sea. So I felt like as a young child and definitely as a teenager that I have made, you know, it's like everything was perfect. Upper middle class family, great friends and colleagues, great future ahead of me and opportunity to indulge in such a beautiful contrasting nature. 
what happened once you got to your teenage years then, and you started having some conflict, I guess, with politics and different republics within Yugoslavia? What happened then when you when you're a teenager? It's an interesting question, really, because all of a sudden, instead of going to concert that evening and next day going to school, my world collapsed and shattered. War was already flaming in Croatia, but we never thought that something can possibly happen in Bosnia. One of the main reasons why, because we're all there, brothers and sisters intertwined with different religion, with different ethnic groups, all together. Now, this was, is this 1991? What time period is this? Yes, you're spot on, Kevin. It's 1991. Okay. And then I'm seeing this propaganda media news and outlets and radio station. And believe it or not, TV station popping up left and right. And all of a sudden, I'm in the midst of the events. They're so portrayed in so many different ways that you just can't believe if you're not experiencing what you're experiencing yourself. It's like, I am actually seeing unfolding in front of my eyes. It was shocking. And at the same time, my grandma, through cooking or talking, and her wisdom of surviving First World War and Second World War, prepared me to really tap into my resilience. She said, Isabella, no matter what happens in the life, promise two things. One, you are not going to ever give up on yourself and your dreams. And second, you're not going to ever lift a hand on yourself, meaning no matter what, you're not going to end your life. You're going mm. to fight for your life. Wow. Why do you think she said that? Because it was a time where it was not just that imminent danger and split second of decision making that could play out in so many different directions. When you're having controlling party taking over the town or where they are trying to push you to spread propaganda or trying to blackmail and leverage in your family, that you just constantly keep thinking and on high alert saying, what is my next move? So you're getting ready to go to a concert, right? You're getting ready to go to school next day. I guess, what, what happens from there, Isabella? The first incident where people were for over four years not able to leave the city and were constantly shelled. And before you know, we had a curfew. We had a lack of electricity or sporadic. Or before I knew it, I couldn't go back to college. I couldn't truly live any more and more normal life. There was these insane day-by-day -day dramatic changes. And you're all of a sudden sitting and looking at your parents and everybody around you. And you think you're freaking going go crazy. Because... They are not matching actions, words, and conditions. All this is just a huge mashup of insanity. And all of a sudden, it was so limited what I can do. Besides helping with my younger sister and helping with my sick dad, who at that time actually developed a lot of complications to his diabetes. My mom as a nurse working in a hospital and helping and caring for everybody else. I felt like I needed to do something. I'm seeing elderly people laying with no proper clothing or blankets even and, and seeking for help because they escaped certain parts of Sarajevo or Sarajevo outskirts. And when you see, it's like a boiler frog syndrome. I don't know if you're familiar with that. You put a frog in a mild or lukewarm water and slowly start increasing temperature. It's amazing how we as a humans can adopt. And it's interesting too, the same thing with the frogs, as slowly temperature increase, we get to the point where we truly can boil over. 
And sometimes we adapt and adapt to the point that we don't know where our threshold is and where that boiling point is, either to explode internally or externally or put ourselves horrible, horrible danger. All right, let's pause this conversation for a second, Steph, because Isabella just threw a lot at us. Yes, she did. This is back in the 90s during the Balkan Wars. She's a teenager and all of a sudden life changes. War breaks out in this communist socialist city that she lived in in Yugoslavia. And for four years, nobody can leave their city. There's very limited supplies that can go in and out of the city. Mm -hmm. Not good when your father is a severe diabetic and your sister as well. So not good situation. Then, of course, in the city, she talked about their shelling. I didn't know shelled. what Shelly meant. You had to look that up for me. I thought I knew what it meant. I was close, it, w- what I thought it was. But it is just bombing. Mm-hmm. It is literally just bombing in your city. So this is constantly going on. So what stood out to you, I guess, in that first section of this conversation? Her conversation with her grandmother. Mm, I thought that warning. was really interesting, where her grandmother had been through World War One, World War Two, and she had seen all of this. And she just asked Isabel not to take her life. And I was like, Ugh. Because she knew how severe this could be yep. from living through World War One into just nervous, this is what it could mean for you. Yep. And then, of course, at the very end, she mentioned the boiler frog syndrome. Have you heard of that before? I have, actually. And what is that? If you put a frog in like lukewarm, normal temperature water, the frog just can kind of relax and he doesn't jump out of the water. But once you start increasing that temperature... At a slow rate, that frog just gets used to it, and he can basically boil to death, and he'll never realize what's happening. Right. Just gets cooked to death. And so, it's a metaphor for people's inability and unwillingness to react or be aware of threats of what's currently going on. Mm-hmm. And it just reminds me of like California, San Francisco. California is one of the most beautiful places in the United States. San Francisco, one of the most amazing cities in the United States. However, over time, it has gotten worse and worse to the point where it is almost unlivable out there. How many people in California have left the state Mm -hmm. this past year because of just how bad it's gotten over time? They look back and they think, hey, this is not what I grew up up 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. right? With taxes, homelessness, just it's turned into letting people do whatever they feel like and not holding people accountable. There's no repercussions. No repercussions. And so that is boiling frog syndrome. So here we go. This next section with Isabella Lundberg. And once they shut down the city, how long until you escaped? So before I could even possibly find them to escape, I was finding myself under these horrible circumstances where I'm actually wanted seeked out to do things that I knew they're not in my own values and values with my own family, the way I'm raised. And in the same time, I'm looking on one hand, my dad dying from complications of diabetes that needs so urgently, desperately care, barely breathing trying to tell me in those dark hours during the night when I will hear him cough and asking and saying, Bella, you know you can't save me and I really wanted to die in my own home under my own rules. But what I want you to do, Bella, I want you to do this for me. And before he gave me a task, he said something profound. He said, Isabella, you know very well that if you sell your soul to devil, 
devil will always come back and seek and ask for more. Meaning at that time, the groups who was offering solution was also a group who was blackmailing, who did a lot of psychological torture, who did a lot of things and also were pressuring me to do things that I didn't want to do. And when you have people with the guns, you can't tell them and keep telling them no. And what happened is they keep saying, you said no a couple of times already, and next time you may not have a chance. Mm. And I just didn't know when the next time will be and how fast it's going to happen. And I remember, sadly, when my dad passed away, he gave me the task. I had a year and a half older sister, type 1 diabetic. And we, even though with last convoys that were coming, we we're begging, sending money, asking to bring insulin because we knew how important that is. And at that time, nothing could go out, right? So finally, solution came across they needed a medical help, were allowed to leave the town. And through influence of my prominent family, warriors in their own rights, they were influencing the, my sister to be on that last Conway because she will pass if she could not escape. And my dad's wish was, no matter what happens, escape with your sister and save your life. That is what I'm asking of you. That's your task. That is the golden carrot because he knew that he needed to leave me with something greater and more important because he didn't also want me to lose my life staying there. So how old are you at this time? Uh, we're talking about when war started around 16, by then I was 17 and a half. And then what happened is this very interesting element. I didn't have no idea we're going to be able to be on that list or how I'm going to escape because I wanted it on the other aspects. And they did something beautiful and clever. So many people risked their lives. And what they did is put my sister's name plus escort. They did not disclose who that was. And my mom was heavily involved in hospital and hospital care. She didn't have any an, remote interest and desire to leave. She was helping everyone, all ethnical groups and whatnot. But what was also beautiful, I want to stress, dad, he was an amazing human being, amazing legacy to fulfill. And I just knew that my shoes <laughs> have to not only to be very big, but also have to step in those shoes and be extremely brave. And now to answer your question, Kevin, that opportunity arrived. We escaped. We got on those buses. I was that escort without a name on it. We figured out where to join, how to leave. And just so you know, at that time, three conflicting parties agreed that they will let the convoy pass through, convoy of buses. Okay. At that time, I believe it were seven or eight buses, buses that could not go on regular roads, they were going through these mountain cliffs and there were these roads that we didn't even know existed. They, they, <laughs> like a trailing the blaze through unknown without knowing, are we going to run in minefields? Are we going to run into other groups that will decide not to respect that and just blow us up? Or whatever could happen. The level of danger, something that typically will take five hours, that that journey will take us over five days. Wow. Is everyone just crammed in like as many people as you can on this bus? Yes. Everybody's in there. Elder people. There was just a few younger. I was one of the youngest on the bus with my sister and one pregnant woman with a little baby. Okay. Majority of people that were in pain 
having severe health issues, but because of understanding the danger, we're super quiet to the point that when we started, driver gave us rundown on what we can and cannot do. So many times he will drive middle of the night with completely lights turned off. Oh, wow. And I was praying that we just don't end up somewhere in ditches or over the cliff. Driver asking everybody to be super quiet, not begging and asking for toilet. If you have to go, you have to go inside. Before you know it, we had a smell of all kinds of body fluids there, permeating. So at this point, Isabella and her sister have just got on this convoy of buses for those people who have urgent medical needs. Mm -hmm. I bet she was so excited and yet so scared because she's, A, she's fulfilling what her father asked her to fulfill. Yes, to escape. Right? So she's escaping, but now she has her sick sister that she needs to take care of. I mean, can you imagine the fear in everyone's eyes on that bus? So- Let's talk about how dangerous this is. Yes. So war is going around them, mm-hmm. all around. So you can't take a lot of the main roads because <laughs> there's bombing, there's landmines. And so they've got to go off the beaten path. Also, the three conflicting parties have approved seven or eight convoy of buses to cross the borders. However, she knows you can't trust mm-hmm. these security people. Yeah. So they could get to one of these convoys, checkpoints. these checkpoints, and they'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. We're going to need X amount of dollars, this or that. So they have to drive at night. They've got to turn the lights off. They have to be super quiet because it is incredibly dangerous to go the normal roads and they don't know what they're going to get at every single checkpoint. Mm-hmm. So just incredibly dangerous to be on one of these buses. Well, you think like they feel like they won the lottery getting on this bus, but they still have to make the journey. And they still don't know whether they're going to live or die going through each part of this journey. And stuff. I, <laughs> it is brutal for me to be in the car and have to go to the bathroom. Oh. I can't imagine no. 50 people or whatever crammed yeah. into a small bus and everybody's going to go to the bathroom. You just be quiet. Can you imagine? You probably could hear a pin drop. The amount of anxiety, fear that was just arising. Like you never know when that bus is going to stop. You think you're sleeping on that bus? No. No, Mm-mm. I don't think so. Ugh. Well, let's go to the next section here of this incredible story with Isabella Lundberg. So five days on a bus sounds horrific. Mm-hmm. Where did you stop then? Where did they finally let you off the bus then after five days? That is a great question, Kevin, because interestingly, when we started, I never thought about, first of all, what do you bring? Because they're asking you to bring just small belongings, right? Because it was not enough room. Second of all, having diabetic sister, how much the food supply and water do I have? Because we never in Wilder's Dream expect it's going to be five days. Mm. When are we going to have a break and where is safe to step away from the bus and not go too far because we might step on the mines? I mean, fear after fear after fear because so many unknown danger and additional things. You hear far out danger, explosion. But what was really interesting is we ran out of the food. We ran out of the water. And I remember, I can never forget this little packet from those cafes with a little sugar. You know, there was all the ammunition I had and very little insulin that was left. And begging and praying for my sister not to fall in coma or have enough whatever food I had is going to last. It's not like you stop to great restroom and you go there or you go to the restaurant and then and you kind of order the meal. 
And I remember intuitively I knew. So whatever I had was saving and hiding and piece of chocolate or a little piece of whatever, you know, I had. And I remember, and I will never forget this. I loved peanut butter. <laughs> because in that time we don't have a, we didn't have a peanut butter in Europe that was imported obviously later on from US we didn't I didn't even know what peanut butter was and I remember that Americans when they came and some supporters they brought some of the packets of peanut butter probably was million years old but <laughs> I remember the trade offs like I will always ask do you have any peanut butter and they were laughing I was like we don't have that and I just loved these little packets because not only they were so tasty and I love peanuts but they also were great energy source and I remember I had a few of those packets because they're small they didn't take much room and I need to arm myself with whatever I can to help my sister. And I remember counting how many of those packets I have left. I remember for her also wondering, you know, when's going to this end? And first real stop, we had this by this little creek and water. I will never forget cleaning my hands, first of all, and then giving the water to her to drink from my palms of my hand. And just like refreshing in that chilling, beautiful, clean water. And knowing that my sister will not make it, I asked to be left out of the convoy of the buses right before we reached to a Croatian border to this little town where we knew some people because we truly needed resources, food and break. That was the first time where we could actually have a warm shower. That was the first time where we could change the clothing. There was the first time that we could put our head on the pillow. And the buses, by the way, Kevin and stuff that we were traveling on, they were not those beautiful excursion soft buses. They were these old, hard, with no cushion buses that were used for short distances. And all of a sudden, you're super grateful, even for that. But you don't realize how stiff you get, how tired you get, how you learn on adrenaline for so long. And gratitude with all of that, with warm bread that it's being given to us, I can't explain beyond gratitude and beyond, it's almost like an out-of-body experience in a way. So Steph, we just moved into a new home. You know who's good at homes? I do, Jay Luby. And? Miss Connie Luby. Yes. They build custom homes. They do remodeling. They do office construction. Steph, if you go to lubycompanies.com, they have a picture by picture here on the portfolio. And everyone is absolutely amazing. I want every one of them. <laughs> I want that one or that one. Oh, maybe that one. The Gorgeous. only problem about lubycompanies.com, it's hard to spell. Uh, there's no way... I could spell their last name unless you would have told me. I guarantee they get asked every day, how do you spell that? So friends, it's L-U-E-B-B-E companies.com. Go to that website. Phenomenal pictures of what they do. From new construction to like new renovations, the Luby companies are here to partner with you. They are also a proud sponsor of... Tell us a good story. So you get off the bus after five days... You make the decision, I'm getting out of this convoy. I'm going to a town that has some family and friends in. What happens then? I remember going to this little cafe. It was just two people there. 
and asking if I can use the phone to call one of our cousins. Like, I don't even know if they're there. I'm taking this huge risk, but I just like following my intuition, following my guidance, I'm going to do it. And I have to do whatever I have to do. Luckily, they were there. They were escaped from Sarajevo months and months prior. And they came with a car to pick us up, maybe within 25 to 30 minutes. I don't know. I don't remember even having watched at the time. I remember that we were asked to hide and not have any of the valuable the belongings visible because we had been stopped through the convoy before on different checkpoints, middle of nowhere. And we just know that people, a lot of those military guys were looking for valuables. So I know that we were stripped or, or whatever maybe we had, we were hiding. So not to be obvious. And I also remember I was also trying to make myself looking messy and unattractive and dirty and sick so that I'm not being identified as a possibly someone that they want to use as entertainment for their purposes and needs. Wow. So how long were you with your family then once they rescued you? We were there less than 48 hours because shooting was going on everywhere. And in a distance, and they were also afraid what might happen. And they also were afraid that borders might be shut down. So I remember we stayed the following day. We took extra respite. And the day after, uh, we were on another bus that we figured out is going to pass by and um, going directly to the capital. And that's where realization of accuracy of the news and those regions came to light and, and what was really going on. And I remember then again, another bus driver who was telling us what are we doing and, and what's going to happen. This time he had a news all the time on. He was using a radio, a talkie-walkie, and he was constantly trying to figure out is it safe for us not to cross here. And I just didn't know how much dangerous we were. The same thing was in the previous journey, but this time we were able to hear everything because he wanted to keep us aware in case we needed to react or act or quickly evacuate the bus. So he really prepared us in a different way um, what possibly might be coming. And as a result, that journey that should take you again less than 12 hours, you know, end up to be days. And because we have to go around, we also have to wait. But luckily, we were able to get into little towns and areas where we were still little grocery stores open or where we can use the restroom or where there some of the restaurants were working, where we'll be able to at least get us some nice warm meal. And that journey was not, not necessarily less danger but was pleased a little bit more connected and more closer to other people in case that we need help. So now you're in Croatia. You've been traveling for days on this bus. You pack more supplies. You get off the bus. So what happens then? We finally reach our destination after almost three and a half days, an opportunity to truly recover and then really start executing on multiple things which is where is insulin, where we can get it, how do we get it, do we need to buy it, do we need to pay for it, where is the doctor, where is all of those things that were so pressing, right? But the one of the most pressing thing was, how do we leave the country? Where do we go from here? I just knew that we need to go further. And my plan was all along to go to Sweden, Sweden was at that time still was very few countries accepting refugees from former Yugoslavia. But (laughs) 
all Western side of Europe was shut down with very rigorous rules that nobody can get through those countries anymore. And refugees are not welcome and creating all these barriers for us not to be able to enter. Okay. And ironically, before I knew it, I found myself on this new journey on another bus, third bus at that time, going with one-way ticket with my sister and taking tremendous risks to go to Eastern Europe. And we were going, obviously, through Hungary, through Czech Republic, and then Poland. And we got a Croatian passports and all of that. I'm seeing, again, the power of the rulings that at any given point of these checkpoints, you can be taken off the bus, your passport can be taken, and you can be taken away. I've seen on side roads, young girls in prostitution openly. I'm seeing the truck drivers openly seeking young girls. I'm seeing checkpoints open for bribery. I'm seeing our driver protecting us because most, most of the people on the bus were actually women, very few men. And if they were men, they were older men that are not eligible for fighting. And all of a sudden, you realize you have to be the man. You have to stood up for yourself. You have to be your own advocate. You have to be invincible. You have to be tough. You have to be all of those things in order to, A, not to show the fear, in order to not cave in, in order not to allow them even to cross that boundary. All right, Steph. So at this point, she's been in this convoy on this bus for days mm -hmm. with her sister. She's been able to take breaks, but what stood out to you during this part of the conversation? Probably the checkpoints. Yes. I mean, they have to be scared. They have to be exhausted. She's a teenager. She's a teenager. And they are literally looking out their windows and seeing prostitution. I mean, I'm sure the girls are their age. They're seeing these men at checkpoints knowing that they could be pulled out at any point asking for money, asking for something that they don't want to give. Oh, Kevin, I just, I can't imagine my heart beating fast every time that bus had to stop at a checkpoint. And looking around, and it's mostly women mm -hmm. or elderly men, yeah. and it's like, who's going to protect me here? Yeah. So, and just fear of the unknown. Mm -hmm. As you're driving and you get to every checkpoint, it's like, what is about to happen because of happen? what you're actually seeing outside the bus? And here's the thing. Once they get through one checkpoint, I'm sure they can breathe a sigh of relief, but then they have to do it again. And then they have to do it again. Yeah. Again, Ugh. fear the unknown. What's yeah. coming? So you're always on edge that entire trip. All right. So let's move on to the next section here of our conversation with Isabella Lundberg. These bus drivers... Did you guys pay them or did they literally just do this out of the kindness of their heart because they wanted just to protect you people? Initial convoy for sick and elderly that was going from uh, outskirts of Sarajevo to Croatia was kind of a humanitarian mutually agree effort. But you also have maybe extra couple of hundred uh, euros or German marks at that time to give to expedite that process. And sometimes when they say when it's impossible, money makes everything possible. <laughs> and, and it's interesting. I was lucky to know when to insert that money so that we could truly get forward where we needed to. Mm -hmm. So how long were you on the third bus then? 
that you just got on? Uh, I believe that was also close to like three and a half, four days, maybe even longer, maybe five. I will never forget all of those three drivers were super brave and they were such a great advocate for women. I mean, I wish I can remember their names. I really wanted to thank them. I wish I could know where they are today because they were only advocates for all of us and they were looking after us. They didn't have to, but they were superheroes because how was I cringing when I saw the prostitution and girls taken from these trucks or in the trucks and treated as a meat, uh, and they barely could be 15, 16, 17 years old. I was just like, oh my God, this could be my destiny. I remember almost dying my heart stopped when they asked for my name. I remember my legs shaking as I stood up and walked to the guy holding all these passports and calling my name out. And then he would just smile, wig grin, and tell me all the passwords. He says, please return all those passports to other passengers. But the way he asked in the authority, I just didn't know what he's going to do. And I remember just like my heart just beat again, coming back to life when I turn my back and with big smiles start giving passports back because I was like, thank God, right? So many moments like that, you just simply don't know what is going to happen, when this is going to end, and what really danger and truly lies on the other side of that curve on the road or the next checkpoint or whatever might be the case. So your sister was struggling on the first bus. How was she on bus two and three? Was she getting better? Because every time you were stopping, you were able to get the medicine, you were able to get food, or did she struggle the whole journey with you? I have to say one of the things that I learned later, my dad in his last month of dying, he stopped taking insulin and he kind of faked it to us because he wanted to make sure that she had enough. And because of him, she had enough till we got to Zagreb. And luckily, we were able to get supply and buy what we needed till we get to Sweden. And I was like so happy that we have at least a couple of months of reserves, right? And honestly, she struggled, but she was also so brave. She would not tell me, you know, what was happening. I remember at one point looking down to her feet and her legs so badly swollen. I remember taking off her socks, shoes that she couldn't later on fit in because we're super tight and massaging her legs and, and, and doing anything I could or standing in the back or, or, or talking to drivers sitting in front on those stairs, which was dangerous. But I know just to learn what's going on and giving her more space so she can lay down and prop her legs up, whatever I could do to make her comfortable or make anybody else comfortable. But I also thought if I'm serving them and if I'm helping them out, you know, they'd at least know that not everybody on this bus is just on this journey and 100% depend on them. And that really served me tremendously because they will tell me things or ask me about stuff. And it was just this like collaboration. I just intuitively, I was young, but I was just so brave, I guess, and created these connections so that they could truly also tell me what was happening so that I can adjust. So how did you know you were in Sweden? Did the driver say, you guys were We're crossing the border, we're here? Did you know, like, what was the atmosphere like in that bus when you finally made it? I love that question. Because I remember when we get to the port where this big ferry, and I remember bus driver telling us, now it's time to say goodbye. 
and I felt like it's end of the world. He was the only person beside my sister that I knew that I trust on my safeguard, right? I was like, what do you mean? He goes, now you guys are going to go on this ferry. We're going to go with full bus. You're going to take all your belongings. And now you, when you land, when you get there through the ferry to the first that port in Trailburg close to Malmed, then you're going to be asking for asylum. And I can't go anymore with you. Now it's journey on your own. And then from there, the Sweden government and everybody else will take care of you. I felt so many emotions. And I remember I'm like excited. We're going to see Sweden pretty soon. And at the same time, I felt like, well, what if we're taken somewhere else? What if we're, in, you know, million, million questions, right? And I had to, again, hold my fear, my tears, my anxiety and play that it's now super awesome excursion because we're going finally to our destination. And I remember when we arrived, when we still first saw, because it was an overnight ferry and we're seeing this first sun rising up and we're really going to get there because I just like, I didn't believe it till I see it. Right. It's like, in a way, it's like so imaginary, like we're finally really going to make it. And I can't explain when I got that first step on that soil, how much we tightly hug each other and laughed and smiled and cried in the same time. Like we made it. There was like this triumphant moment that gave me so much energy, even though I was exhausted, deprived of sleep, but I was super, super happy. And I have to say, it was one of the biggest victories of my life. All right, Steph. What were you thinking when you saw her kind of tear up when she was talking about the bus drivers and how they protected her and and the women there? I mean, the admiration that she had for each one of those drivers, they truly were superheroes because they risked their life to save all of these people that they didn't even know. I mean, that's humanity at its finest, right? Like, absolutely. I mean, to be so selfless, to try to rescue these people, but then to have the trust and these bus drivers that they're going to do the right thing because you don't know where they're it, taking you, what their they intentions you are to another, a camp, right? Right. They Concentration said, camp. Yes. Or who knows? You had to have faith that these bus drivers were going to do the right thing. And that's scary. The other part that stuck out to me was when they actually arrived to Sweden mm. and she talked about how, it's one of the biggest victories of her life mm-hmm. where they got to Sweden, feet on the ground. They finally made it. She they felt safe. It. She felt like, okay, here's a government who is going to allow us to live here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be able to get supplies for my sister. And at that point, she pretty much, she saved her sister's life mm-hmm. once they got to Sweden and had access to that type of government. Not only did she save her sister, their father saved her sister. Like that man basically died so his daughter could live. And gave up all the insulin Mm -hmm. for his daughter. Yep. Oh, that was amazing. Well, hope you enjoyed this next section with Isabella Lundberg. So you get to Sweden. How long are you in Sweden then with your sister? I was in Sweden for about three and a half years. And it was a very interesting journey. I was not allowed or not didn't know if I'm going to get permanent residency or not, what's going to happen. 
and was really interesting because my sister was diabetic and she was dependent, obviously, on the government and Swedish uh, healthcare and everything else. And in a way, based on who she was, ironically, she was more desirable to be granted visa and permanent residency than I was, who was independent, healthy, who also picked up the language and served hundreds and thousands of refugees from former Yugoslavia because I learned the language very, very quickly because of necessity, because of need for my sister her out, but also because I realized I needed to advocate for myself. And ironically, through that whole process, I was looking the alternatives for both of us. And I was looking Canada, Australia, US, and New Zealand. I mean, just like, you know, anywhere where the refugees truly are welcome, but also where is a good regime and system so that we can truly thrive in those environments, right? And I had a, one of the difficult decisions in my life to make a choice and say that I'm actually leaving my sister behind and going on my own journey after that. And ironically, because of her condition, pre-existing condition, she was not a good candidate to come to the United States. They even told me, Isabel, I know she gets granted refugee status. She, we, we, we're having a hard time bringing people with existing conditions and healthcare and all these issues, she will have uh, so many obstacles and challenges. She's better to stay in Sweden. On the other hand, I knew if I don't take action and, and take the risk uh, to go to this interview and, and, and face American consul and, and ask him, you know, to get granted refugee status based on my story, that I will not have a ch other choice. Either I would be deported back and most likely killed. And during those times, I never thought I would be in this situation. I never in a million years expected that we'll have to face this decision and that we have to now part ways. That's exactly what happened. So where did you leave her then? And how old, I guess, how old was your sister at that time? She was a young adult. She was given and granted permanent residency. She started going to university. And ironically, she became a nurse actually with master's degree in special studies in diabetic care. And she's now an amazing contributor, not only to Swedish society, but helping so many people with a huge epidemic of diabetes and fulfilling, in a way, dad's legacy, not only as an educated nurse and diabetic, but also as a diabetic to serve people in such a profound ways. You talk about a legacy that your dad left. He basically, he lost his life to save his oldest daughter's life. And because of that, she is now saving other diabetic people because of this situation. I mean, if that is not incredible. Yes. And he also saved me, Stephanie, because he didn't want me to do what others wanted me to do to, in order to quote unquote save him, because we never know if they will be respecting the other side of the bargain. So in a yes. way, he saved actually both of us. On the other hand, it was bittersweet because what we learned, my, my, my father's closest cousins who risked to put us on that list later on was executed on the back of his head because he did a lot of things, including putting me on that list to escape. Uh, that was not in alignment with the ruling party at that time and, and a decision maker. And he, according to him, went against his wish or against his order to do that. No, no, I want to talk again. I have more questions. I have more questions. Okay, so <laughs> what happened to your mom? Ah. <sighs> 
My mom worked in a hospital, saving as many people she could to the point that whole that little town outside of Syria was collapsing and that she had to grab my sister and escape. And before she could escape, the borders were shut down. Refugees were not welcome anywhere. And my younger sister that at the time was minor that I could not take with us and my mom decided that she would apply and use her degree and reestablish herself in this beautiful Baroque city on the border with Hungary and start new life just because all the other options were taken away and um, fortunately was not meant to be. So at some point, Isabella, you get approval to come to the United States. Where did you go? Did you go to Denver or did you go somewhere else originally in the United States? So if you leave the country that you're in asylum on, before you get approved, you lose status automatically and you can never get back. Um, And at that time, if you don't have an alternative place to go, if it's not guaranteed, you are forced and you are deported and you push back for where you just escaped. So I did something crazy (laughs) and something insanely bold. And think about it. I don't have a parents. I don't have a mentor. I don't have an advisor. I don't have nobody to really tell me, give me advice, right? And all of a sudden, I'm finding myself tapping into divine guidance. I can't explain anything else than say divine intervention and divine guidance. And I remember, I'm like, I'm being an advocate for refugees. I'm being interpreter. I'm being serving Swedish community. I'm being in an interviews and in newspapers. I'm being helping, right? It's like, I did it good here. I wasn't just a refugee who is living on social service and waiting one day for something to change. I wasn't depending of the community. I was also part of the community. So I'm like, I'm going to the mayor. I'm going to speak with the mayor. I didn't even know what I was doing. I just know I dressed up in best black dress I had, was freaking freezing cold outside. I didn't even have a warm coat. I remember walking as fast as I could because earlier I called and demanded meeting with the mayor for extremely urgent matter. His assistant, and he didn't know what to do. And he was like, okay, 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 come before the closing of the day. And I remember bringing my passport with me. And demanded to see him. And they're like, okay. And and then he didn't know why I was there for. I didn't give them a chance to think through. And finally, when I showed up, he said, okay, mayor's going to see you. And I remember standing in front of the mayor when he offered to take a seat. And I said, thank you. This is going to be quick. If you don't mind, I'd like to stand. And he looked at me completely shocked and surprised. He's like, what is this all about? And I was just like bold and clear and determined. I said, listen, I need to ask you for a favor. I need six months visa. If I get approved, I'm going to United States and I'm not coming back. If I do, I will only be coming back as a tourist. And this is win-win for both of us. I literally said this, one less refugee for you to worry about it. And for me, life opportunity because I cannot go back. If I don't get approved, I will be bent back because I don't have other place to go. And I promised whatever I need to do, I will continue to support community. He stared at me and then I just handed to him passport. And I will never forget his look in his face. He looked at me, he took a passport, he said, just a second. Less than 15 minutes, he returned back with six months visa in my passport. <laughs> when I walked out on that frigid 
cold weather. I felt so warm in my heart. I felt like my dad was with me. I can't explain. I was skipping. I felt like a five-year-old. I was just so happy to share finally the victory news with my siblings. And there was one of, again, a very epic and very happy moments in my life. If you like what you hear, please tell someone about us. As soon as this episode is over, go tell your spouse, your closest friend, a parent, a coworker, or share one of our posts on social media. However, if you don't like what you're hearing, please do not. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anybody. Just disregard this message. Don't worry about it. Forget about us. Yep. Go on with your merry day. And to get more information about us or our entire catalog of episodes, be sure to check us out at kevinandsteph.com. Thank you for listening to Tell Us a Good Story. Oh my goodness. So when you get to Denver, you've read about the United States. Is it what you expected? What was so different, how people were so friendly, how Americans were super awesome and smiling, positive, how welcomed I was, how easy to navigate and integrate, how all of a sudden, uh, you know, even the city for that size, for me, it was like, I never lived in such a big city. Even Stockholm is not that big, you know, with all of the outskirts of the city. And then the whole sense of friendliness. And of course, learning about American football. I never had that exposure, right? Why we still love so much hot dogs or why we like so much burgers or why we <laughs> do certain things we do, you know, pregame cocktailing, whatever you call it, you know, I forget Tailgating. what it's called. Yes. Everybody's sitting on the end of pickup trucks and drinks beer before big games start. I was like, what are you doing? It was like this big <laughs> cultural shock. I was like, I've never seen anybody doing this pre-game thing and then going on to game. You know, and experiences of like first baseball game. I remember I was like, that was like amazing because it was slow enough that you can really understand what's going on, but it was also great because I could talk and connect with people and really live that family values and American spirit and just be feeling like a part of that and being welcome into it. Mm. Oh, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Well, listeners, for more information about Isabella, you can go to her website, isabellalundberg.com, and please check out her book. It's titled The World Messenger, From Fear to Greatness. It is on Amazon. It is her best-selling book. Very impressive. And she also has a podcast. The podcast is titled The Legacy Leader Show with Isabella Lundberg. And we will put links in the show notes and on our website to all of this information so you can access her website, her social media, and get access to her book and podcast. Well, Isabella. Amazing. I can't imagine the resilience mm -hmm. that was required. Well, just your faith and your boldness to survive everything you did. It was just incredible. I loved it. And you saved your sister in the process. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to Steph and I. We're honored to have you. Thank you, Kevin. And pleasure meeting you, Steph. I heard so many things about you and your background, and I found it around it. I just love how guys are so like this like burst of uh, of the joy and and, and and genuine beautiful joy. So I just want to say that is so refreshing. So thank you. Friends, we want to encourage you to please follow us wherever you listen to this, whether it's on the Apple Podcast app, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or one of the other platforms. You guys, it's completely free. And while you're there, feel free to give us a rating or a nice review. Thank you for listening to Tell Us a Good Story.